Good morning. My name is Doug Bookman. I teach at uh, Shepherd Seminary in Raleigh, in Cary, North Carolina, but around here, my only uh, claim to fame is one of my best friends in the world is Josh Steffen. So uh, I appreciate so much the opportunity to be with you, and uh, it's always so good to be with the Steffens family. But uh, it's been my delight and privilege, and I can't speak for the customers, but, uh, but it's been my delight to be with you and yesterday and then this morning to do a, a sort of a flyover of the Passion Week of Jesus. And uh, we have done that. Uh, uh, I'm going to pick it up with the cross. You know what? It would, might be. I'll leave it alone. Uh, and, and, and I've tried to make the point along the way that this narrative, this real story is so blessed and we have these four accounts which enable us, as we harmonize them, put them together to come away with a really... Uh, you know, I mentioned the, to, the, uh, in, to the time we had yesterday that each one of the four Gospels is deliberately selective, and yet each one of them gives about 40% 40, 40 of the space that they have to this final week of Jesus' life. And what that suggests is that, number one, we can put it together in great detail, but number two is... God really wants us to understand this week. And so that's been our focus throughout the uh, time we've had together. And, uh, I, and, and, and well, this is the outline that we have used just by way of quick summary and review that Jesus on Sunday comes into the city uh, of Jerusalem. It's March 29th, 33 AD. Time out. How do I come to that? Well, when you do your homework, there are only two years that could possibly be the year of Jesus' crucifixion, 30 and 33, and I think all the evidence is for 33, and so that's what I'm arguing. But once you establish that he died in 33, then you simply have to go back and find out when Passover occurred, and that was April 3rd, 33 AD, so that's the day on which Jesus dies. And then uh, and, and you can back up a week and you come to the, that is, to the uh, former Sunday, and you come to the, uh, uh, to the triumphal entry. So on, the tr on, on, on that day, which, which Jesus had carefully prepared for, he had alerted the city to his coming and so on, it's only rides into the city, and we call it a day of messianic presentation because that is the day uh, that, that, that you, when you, when you uh, sing the chorus out of Psalm 118, 24, this is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Just know that that day that you're talking about there is March 29th, April 33, and it's the, uh, uh, March 29th of 33. What did I just say? And that, and that, uh, that was the day of official messianic presentation, but we asked the question, given Sunday, why Friday? Why are they crying for his crucifixion? We think the answer is Monday and Tuesday because he makes the truth so plain concerning himself and then drives them to a decision to choose between him and the Pharisees. And so days of messianic proclamation where the gospel, I'm sorry, where Jesus makes it so clear what he demands and, and primarily that they trust him and not the Pharisaic self-righteousness. And so he drives the city to a decision. Tuesday night, Judas sneaks away, uh, meets with the Sanhedrin clandestinely and, and offers to help them arrest Jesus in the absence of the multitude. That's the problem, Luke 22, 6. And so in point of fact, that's going to happen on Thursday night at the Passover. So on Tuesday night, a plot is laid in place. Wednesday is a busy, though silent in the record, day where all of the preparations are be being made to spring this plot because it was all important that they get Jesus arrested, tried, sentenced, and on his way to execution while the city was asleep. And we talked about that uh, this morning in Sunday school, but in point of fact, Thursday is a day of preparation, first of all, in the upper room where Jesus preaches and prepares his disciples for what's about to happen, though they are entirely clueless. And then Jesus makes his way from the upper room down to Gethsemane, and you have that stunning season of prayer in which Jesus is preparing his own soul spirit for what's about to happen. One of the points we try to stress is that during his time on earth, Jesus had no more spiritual resources than you and I. And one of those blessed spiritual resources upon which Jesus was staggeringly and, and, and demonstrably dependent was prayer. And so he was anxious for those moments of prayer, and he, he finds that in, in Gethsemane, but now he leaves, and as he does, he is arrested. And we come to Friday, and first of all, you have a series of trials. 
first of all, Jewish hearings where they meet just to come up with an indictment. They finally do, and very, very early in the morning, about 4.30, they take him to Pilate, and I neglected to mention something, Sunday school crowd, because, well, as a matter of fact, I can come to it in just a minute. But at any rate, uh, Jesus bears a good confession, as Paul calls it in 1 Timothy 6, before Pontius Pilate, but finally Pontius Pilate does, reluctantly. He doesn't want to do it. I didn't make that up. That's what Peter says in Acts chapter 3. He says to the Jewish leaders, you crucified him when Pilate was determined, use a strong word, was determined to let him go. And the record is absolutely explicit. But finally Pilate, reluctantly, does turn Jesus over to be crucified. And now Jesus, it's, when he does so, it's about, well, it's not about, it's, it, yeah, all right, let me, let me take you to the scriptures, and we'll go to several scriptures, but in John 19 and verse 14, uh, it says, when Pilate therefore, and we rehearsed this, we had the, the Bema seat up here, and when Pilate therefore heard that saying, namely, we're going to tell Caesar if you don't crucify him, uh, he brought Jesus out, sat down in the judgment, the Bema seat, in a place called the pavement, and that pavement is still there, by the way, uh, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was preparation day of the Passover. That means it was Friday, because every week has a preparation. Friday is always, that's the only day of the week that the Jews actually name. They number the others. So it's Friday, and it's about the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour, let me just say this real quickly. Mark tells us that Jesus is placed on the cross about the third hour. And yet he's turned over to be crucified about the sixth hour. How can that be? John is using Roman time, which dates from which which begins at, at midnight. So about the sixth hour is six hour uh, six o'clock in the morning. Mark is using Peter, and who is who is telling the story in Mark, is using Jewish time, which begins at sunup. So the third hour is about nine o'clock in the morning. So Jesus is turned over to be crucified and uh, about the sixth hour, and uh, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, we're going to pick the story up there, and uh, you, if you have the notes, it's fairly, uh, there's not a great deal there, but uh, we're on page 17 of those notes, but I'm just going to walk through the narrative and uh, know that, of course, there is, in every, in every major city in the Roman Empire, there was a, a spot, you know, some, some area just outside of a, of a main gate where crucifixions were held. And, and let me say this about that. We're going to come back to it a couple of times here. But the Romans, in, in the Roman world, crucifixion was not primarily about executing the seditionist, the pretender king, the rebel, because it was specifically for sedition. That is, they had... They had that there were certain protocols that were be followed when a man was crucified because, and to finish the thought, it was not primarily about executing the seditionist. It was about putting down the sedition. That is, it was an object lesson designed, gruesomely designed, to retard whatever seditious impulse might be arising in your heart. Does that make sense to you? And so they had a certain spot where, where executions were, uh, where crucifixions were held, and the, the, the vertical stakes were almost certainly permanent. So there's a gate on the north side of the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' day, Herod's day. It's called the Garden Gate. And just outside that gate was a, uh, was a, was a place of crucifixion. Interestingly enough, it says that near the place where he was crucified, John 19, it says there was a garden. Now again, when you read about a garden in the Bible, it's a farm, okay? It's an it's a uh, agricultural installation. There was a garden, and in the garden there was a tomb. Well, what was at stake at this? And we can recover this very confidently, that in point of fact, the area was a worked-out quarry. And once a quarry was worked out, or it just in, it, for whatever reason it was abandoned as a quarry, it would be sold to someone, and that person would come in and level the ground and, and make it in, to bring dirt in and fill it in and so on, and make it into a farm, a garden, an a agricultural installation. In this case, uh, it was bought by a man named Joseph Barimathea, 
and uh, he had a he was growing grapes and pressing and uh, it was a winery it was producing wine and uh, but once Joseph had had that piece of property then he dug a tomb for himself on one of the hillsides and so now his family tomb and that's why you have uh, but but when they sold Joseph that property they kept carved a little bit off just for the place of crucifixion so that's where Jesus is going to be taken now when he is turned over to be crucified at six in the morning there are preparations to be made and uh, specifically, of course, they're going to go fetch those other. They probably deliberated this at some judicial level. Said, so, well, we have the other two uh, men who have been condemned to crucifixions. They're seditionists, they're robbers, they're, and, and, and so they're going to be crucified. So they arrange for them to be crucified as well. And uh, then everything has to get in readiness. And finally, Jesus is going to be assigned. And it was very, very standard. The victim would 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 carry the cross piece the the horizontal piece and so he's staggering with that and they're making their way out to the place of crucifixion and uh, as you leave the place where he was held uh, by Pilate it's about maybe a quarter mile just to the north outside the city and uh, and there and along the way of course he staggers he's been horribly abused by this time listen let me tell you something this is an aside Jesus was a man's man I mean, honest to goodness, I am persuaded. Oh, I'm going to make some of you really mad. But uh, I am persuaded he was a stonemason. Now, what the Bible says is that he was a tectone, which simply means builder. It can mean artificer, but it really means builder. And the thing about it is, in Israel, you don't build with wood. You never built with wood because they never had beam-grade wood. They always had to go up to Lebanon, and so you build with stone. And, uh, and I say this to make the point, and I'm sure carpenters can be, uh, you know, very well conditioned and so on, but as a stonemason for 18 years, from the age of 12, when he was apprenticed to his father, until he went to be baptized by John, Jesus spent five days a week lugging heavy stones and nine-pound hammers and so on. But at any rate, uh, Jesus, there are two evidences of his physical stamina. The one is when he survives a 40-day fast not many of us could handle that and number two when he survives the unspeakable anguish of the sweating great drops of blood so he was a physically he was a strong strong man but he had been abused so awfully already by the time he staggered toward uh the cross toward, toward the place of execution with that with that cross beam that he staggers and they find a man named simon and he helps him and so on they get to the place of crucifixion and uh and and now we're going to talk about crucifixion. I have said to you before uh, in another setting, that is earlier sessions, that one of the most important and dramatic and unmistakable elements of the narrative that we have in Scripture is that Jesus was, frank, was, was horrified by the cross. And, and I was quick to say that it wasn't the physical sufferings of crucifixion. It was the prospect of being made sin for you and me. And we're going to talk about that because it unfolds in the narrative. But nonetheless, uh, we will talk a little bit about crucifixion. And it is unspeakably gruesome and, and cruel. As a matter of fact, I'll say this. That the Romans made four basic demands of crucifixion. Now again, I'm going to say, crucifixion was about putting down the seditious impulse in anybody who witnessed or anybody who hears about it. And so they demanded, number one, that it be cruel. And, and cruel beyond what is easy for us to imagine. And uh, we've kind of sanitized the whole business of the cross. And uh, in point of fact, uh, victims would be scourged, crucifixion victims. It was fairly standard that they would be scourged. But it wasn't a horrible 39 lashes to the edge of death scourging because they wanted the victim to linger that was the second demand he had to linger. they didn't want him to die quickly they wanted him to hang there at least a day and sometimes they would go into the next day and even beyond not in israel but because they they were allowed to break the legs so that they didn't want him on the cross overnight especially when the next day was shabbat but the point is that that they would they would skirt you see because on the cross once you're affixed to a cross you're 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 rib cage just settles in on your breathing apparatus and you can't breathe on the cross without hoisting yourself up 
Now we know now pretty confidently because of a bone box that was discovered with a nail still in the heel bone of a crucified man that evidently they would nail from the side of each the cross. They would very surgically, they were good at it, they would put a nail through the heel bone so it didn't break any bones, and that's the fulfillment of a prophecy, of course, but he could push himself up. As a matter of fact, you never slept on a cross. You couldn't slip into a coma. You'd gag. Most people died of asphyxiation or gagging on the cross. They couldn't draw any breath anymore. If you wanted to hasten his death, what did you do? You broke his leg, and now he can't push himself up. Now, my point is that every time you breathe, you have to push yourself up. They've scourged you so you have these open raw nerves all across laterally across your back and that 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 timber is rough and splintered and you're pushing yourself up and the splinters are thrusting themselves into the into the open wounds and so on all of that is hugely deliberately cruel you know i i've often thought if you were to encounter a young lady and you, you never you didn't, you know you didn't know this girl at all but you met her and 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 you were talking to her and you know she had a nice little necklace that had kind of charms on it and you noticed just casually that one of those charms was a guillotine. Now you'd think, that's a, macabre, that's a bit macabre, a, a guillotine. And yet think about it. We, we, we regularly you know, wear a, a, a cross. Now here's the difference between the cross and the guillotine. The guillotine was designed to be quick and merciful. The cross was designed to be unspeakably cruel and lingering. So... Like I say, we've kind of sanitized. But they, number one, they wanted to be cruel. Number two, they wanted it to be lingering, and that's why they provided means by which he could... And that's why, and this is important, several times in the course of a crucifixion, the victim would be offered a sour wine that was, would, would dull the pain. Now, there was no mercy in that. They just wanted the man to last for a time on the cross. And several times Jesus is going to be offered that wine, but he's going to refuse it until the very last. We'll come to it. So at any rate, they wanted it to be cruel, they wanted it to be lingering, and they wanted it to be public. And for that reason, it was always on a, on a rise outside of a main gate. Because a main gate is a choke point. You can't, you can't get into the city without going through the gate. And you might find another gate because there's a poor wretch hanging there, but on the other hand, you might always think, you know, kind of, Make your way over to the firewall, away from the, and take your 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 curts and wrap it around your kids' ears and so on. But you got to make your way through that gate, and it was on a rise high enough. It wasn't on some high hill for heaven's sake, but it was on a rise just high enough that people could see it over the crowds, because they wanted you to see this. This was Rome's gruesome, effective object lesson to put down crucifixion. Now, there's one other point, I'm going to come to it in the end, but number one, they wanted to be cruel, they wanted to be lingering, they wanted to be uh, 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 public. And so now Jesus is brought to that place just outside the, the garden gate, and, and uh, he is affixed to that cross piece and, 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 and raised up and crucified. Now, folks, I'm going to stop for a moment, and I'm going to ask you to... Uh, you know, what, what we have before us is a scene which is bottomlessly awful. It is the most staggeringly unjust. Everything about it is so wrong in terms of everything that is right and sacred and holy. But on the same, by the same token, it, it is infinitely blessed. Because this is the moment, this is the scene where, in point of fact, the work of propitiation is going to be done. And certainly, by the same token, it is staggeringly significant. And, and, and it richly deserves, and God intends for us, to focus on it. And yet, let me just tell you something. It is very intimidating as a preacher or a teacher to pretend that I can do anything like justice to what's before us. And so we're just going to make our way through the scene as it's depicted in the Scriptures, and specifically, and I think this is the most important key, the biblical key to understanding, well, first of all, to getting our arms around just a little bit the drama itself, but certainly more important, it is the key 
these times that Jesus speaks to understand exactly what's going on. So I'm going to take a minute, and I, I'm going to invite you to just bow your head and ask God to enable you, for, for the God spirit, for, to enable us as, uh, together to, with the right spirit, understand a little bit and, and allow the Spirit of God to grip our hearts with what's before us. It's an intimidating, honest goodness, it's an intimidating assignment. But I believe God is absolutely, he wants us to ponder this thing. So let me just ask you to bow your heads for just a moment and ask God to just grace our time that the Spirit of God might enable us. And I'm going to pray in just a moment. Now, Father, we acknowledge, as we've just said, that the scene before us is one that, more than any other scene, perhaps in all of Scripture and all of history, deserves our attention, our gratitude, certainly an effort to understand it aright. But, Father, as, as important as it is, it is every bit as overwhelming as we ponder these, these moments, these moments at once so awful and so blessed, at once the most awful and the most blessed scene in all of human history. So I'd ask that your spirit might work. I'd ask that you would uh, make the scriptures and only the scriptures especially uh, meaningful to us. So Father, we are desperately dependent upon your spirit in all things, but at this moment, I'd ask that the spirit might be our teacher uh, might teach our minds and might teach our hearts. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I want to pick it up with the, the uh, as I say, Jesus is hanged on the cross. And let me go back. He is going to speak three times. Here's the crucifixion of the Prince of Life. And uh, uh, his, during the, the three hours, the, all right, what's going to happen is this. He's raised up to the cross. He is affixed in crucifixion. And for three hours, the sky remains light. And during those first three hours, Jesus speaks three times. Now, let me say again, just as a teacher, that, that this is another area where, where there's a great deal of attack because there's no one gospel that gives us all seven of these sayings. And so we have to go from one scripture to the other, and I'd love to talk to you about that and how important it is to validate the truth of scripture. They all said the same thing. If, if, if you had three witnesses in a court of law and they all said exactly the same thing, you'd know that they had colluded. And very important to demonstrating the veracity, the historical integrity of this record, of these four gospels, they, everything they say fits together perfectly but they don't all tell you the same story. They tell you various parts of the story, and they fit together absolutely perfectly. But at any rate, first of all, Jesus, as he is being affixed to the cross, and you have this as it says there in Luke 23, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, to be perfectly frank with you, this is a bit of a... Uh, I'm getting my clock where I can see it here. This is a bit confusing to me. Because I mentioned in, in the former sessions that, that uh, Jesus tells a parable in which uh, about a vineyard owner who lets his vineyard out to some keepers and, and when he sends their, his servants to collect his due, remember they kill him and they, put him and they beat him and so on, and then at the last he sends his son, his only son, his well-beloved son, and, and, and the, 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 the vine dressers do not say, this man claims to be the son that we don't believe in. He says, this is the heir. Let us kill him and seize the inheritance for itself. So in, in terms of the leadership, the Jewish leadership, uh, and again, I go back to Caiaphas in John chapter 11, or the raising of Lazarus, the high priest. They come together and he says, this man does many signs. Therefore, we've got to put him to death or they'll come and take away our place and our nation. So on the one hand, there was a profound sense, it seems to me. Let's say it this way that the rejection of Jesus by that generation was not a function of Jesus insufficiently making the case that he was what he claimed to be. Can we agree on that? 
On the other hand, and I think the primary dynamic, and I say this all the time to people, that it's so hard for us to appreciate the staggering difficulty of bowing the knee to the claims of a man. Hear that? Of a man. A man who used to be a boy, and before that he was a baby, and before that he was an embryo, for heaven's sakes, to, listen, to, to bow the knee to the claims of a man to be God. You know, I, I like to say that I don't know that God has ever set before uh, the world a truth claim which more thoroughly drives us to the end of ourselves and to our knees uh, uh, more staggeringly difficult than this. The Word became flesh. We've got a couple of thousand years to get used to this, but just think about what it would have been to have a man, and you say, well, wait a minute, it wasn't all that tough. He had a halo after all. No, he didn't have a halo. He didn't glow in the dark. He was a man, and he claimed to be God. And I think where I like to go with this is Saul of Tarsus, because I, I think Saul of Tarsus, he, in many ways, he, well, my point is I think the reason Saul says Paul now in Acts, I verily thought within myself that I ought to do these things, is because he just could not compute the idea that this man was God coming to flesh. We've gotten too used to that. So I'm just saying I think that perhaps what's at the heart of Jesus, and by the way, the, the, uh, Luke, the, the word he, the, the tense he uses makes it quite clear that Jesus kept saying this. So they're affixing him to the cross, and again and again he's saying, Father, for they give them. They don't know what they do. And I think they're just perhaps staggered at his claim. Now, by the way, by the way, you believe that Jesus is God, very God. You believe in the God-man, right? All right, simple question, but think about it. If I were to ask you, what is the one evidence, the one proof that more than all the others put together persuades you that Jesus was God very God? Tell me. It's the resurrection. That's the point that Paul's going to make. We're going to wind up there. These people didn't have the resurrection. They just had this Nazarene. Now, he'd done a lot of miracles, and that's important. But for them to... So, I leave it alone. The point is that they, again and again, he, he says, Father, forgive them, for the, no, they know not what they do. And then, in a very nice, I'm just going to go through these. I'm not going to go to the scriptures, but uh, I'll just tell the story. Forgive me for sake of time. But in Luke 23, uh, you remember that there are these two thieves, and they are both railing. Now, I, I have a number of scriptures marked, but I'm not going to go there because I think you remember this. And I'd ask you, as you go back, maybe after the time we have together, might be some profit in going back and, and, and rereading these remarkable narratives and so on. But the narrative is clear that as Jesus was staggering out with the cross, as he was being affixed to the cross, as he was uh, raised up and, and, and crucified, and, and, and for three hours, there are women who are weeping. But the great crowds, both official and non-official, are, are, are you know, crying out insults and ignominy, and you know, if you're really the Christ, come down off there, you said you'd call, and they're making fun of him and deriding him in for three hours. Now, the point is that these two thieves are also deriding him. But one of them, and we will theologically and happily acknowledge that this is the work of the Spirit of God, and, that, but, but, and he acquiesces to the... But, but listen, I said before, folks, this is so important. Jesus did not insufficiently make the case for his own, for his deity. And uh, for the, the, did not insufficiently make the, case, cl uh, make the case that he was everything he claimed to be. And I'm sure both of those thieves were familiar with much of it. But one of them, as he contemplates it and realizes maybe even the grace with which the Nazarene was surrendering his life, that he came to the end of himself. And he acknowledged that there's no explanation other than that man is what he claims to be. And so he rebuked the other thief, and he turned to Jesus, and he said, man, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, what, what I really appreciate about this is that's an Old Testament prayer. 
Because you see, in the Old Testament, uh, they were absolutely confident of resurrection, and they knew that that resurrection would be on to eternal an eternal life in an eternally blessed kingdom. All right, so the the idea of a messianic kingdom on this earth that that would be uh, uh, all that man could possibly hope for in terms of blessedness and so on, they knew that. They knew that because those promises were basic. On the other hand, the grave, I'm saying that the the Old Testament saying new resurrection was coming, but the grave was really dark. You and I know that to be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord. That's New Testament, folks. And we have that confidence because Jesus conquered the grave. But in the Old Testament, their hope was in time. And so when he says, this is a good, solid Old Testament prayer. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, oh, no, I can do better than that. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. I think that man is the first man to ever die with a biblically-based confidence, that is, based on the word of the Savior, that he was going immediately. Now, there had been a story that Jesus told, and we can argue whether it was a parable or history, about a rich man and Lazarus, and, you, and I think that eyes were popping, and, and people, ooh, that's when, when Jesus talks about angels. But you can't find that in the Old Testament. That's the point. You can't go to the Old Testament and find scriptures that make clear that, as a matter of fact, what's the Old Testament word for the grave? Remember? It's Sheol. And who goes to Sheol? Saved people, lost people, animals, plants. It's just the most unspecified. It's where, it's where you go when you die. We don't know anything about it. Remember Hezekiah's prayer when he was told to put his house in it? Oh my God, I'm going to this place. It's no good. Well, in point of fact, Jesus says to that man, no, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then in John, Jesus looks down and he sees his mother at the foot of the cross. And, and, and let me just suggest something, and this is conjecture. I think it's informed, sanctified conjecture, but the big word is conjecture. But we also know from Roman records that even though, and there were four soldiers assigned to each victim who was going to be crucified. And those four soldiers were to reinforce or to, to insist upon the... Uh, uh, protocols that I just mentioned. And, and, but we're, oftentimes, you see, because, now this is going to get ugly, but that rise, oh, let's put it this way, the, the crucified victim was just high enough off the ground that they could, in fact, everybody could see it over the heads of anybody else. But they were low enough that the dogs could nibble. And, and the other painful ignominy that would occur is the birds would begin to peck at the eyes and the flesh and so on. And as much as anything out of a desire to make it lingering, the Roman soldiers would often look the other way. If somebody out of the crowd, some relative, just wanted to come and stand at the foot of the cross with a long swish, and he could scare away the dogs and, and, and scare away the birds and so on. Now, that is recoverable history. Here's the conjecture. I think maybe that's why Mary and some women are at the foot of the cross. They've embraced that responsibility. What's staggering about it and what gripped the heart of Jesus was that his own brothers were not there. Now, they were unbelievers at this moment. But he looked down and saw his mother all alone, and because he understood that there was going to be great cost to be, pay, uh, to be paid in order to be his followers, that there was going to be great persecution and trouble if you were a follower of Jesus, and, and Jesus' heart was heavy because his brothers, yet unsaved, were not even there to help the, his mother at that point. And I think he was gripped with the reality. And you know what? One of the most fascinating, don't go here, but one of the most fascinating things about the life of Jesus, you study carefully, is his relationship to his own physical family. He loved them. He cared for them. Uh, when his adopted father died, somewhere between Luke 2 and Luke 3, Jesus stepped into the role of leadership, and he does lead his family. Now on the cross, he feels a, an, he feels a responsibility. It's a loving, spontaneous responsibility, but he feels a responsibility for his mother to be cared for spiritually. And so he sees John. And, and in that moment, he says, John, behold your mother. And then he says to his woman, 
He's using the word woman because he wants to avoid saying mother because he's not going to be there to be that careful, providing son. Woman, behold your son. Now, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stunningly poignant moment. But I think one application it has to us is this. If, if, if the Spirit of God, I, I won't get into the theology over much, but if the Spirit of God had enabled Jesus supernaturally to know, see, because we know that his brothers are going to get saved. But if Jesus had known that, he wouldn't have turned his mother over. And because the Spirit of God did not equip him, enable him, direct him to know that, Jesus died with a heart unimaginably heavy, with the reality that in moments he was going to become sin for you and me. The curse of sin was going to be laid upon him. But his heart was also heavy with the reality that his own brothers were unbelievers. Folks, do you have unsaved loved ones? Are there those who your heart is heavy for? Know this. Jesus knows all about that. Jesus understands that perfectly. So he attends to that. Now, at noon, the sky becomes dark. It's not dark like you can't see your hand in front of your face because God wants you to see this. There's a curtain of supernatural grayness that, is, that befalls the entire earth. There are reports from other places on earth of this happening. And, and, and as I say, God just wants to physically demonstrate that this is awful, this is wicked, this is the most awful violation of all that is just and, and, and righteous that mankind or, or a triune God could ever imagine, but it was necessary. And so now he pulls a curtain of grayness over the earth. Now, one of the interesting dynamics, as you read the story, put it all together, is at this point, all of the insults, all of the calumny, all of the hooting and hollering stops. Can you imagine? Get in that moment. Now, you've got a lot of history here. Like I say, there can't be more than two or three degrees of separation, I think, between anybody alive in the land at that day and somebody who got healed. Or, and so you know that this has been a wonder worker. And you know that, that, that the, 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 the leadership, the Jewish leadership has insisted he's, he's an imposter and so on. So you're going to go along with it. And, uh, and you watch as in, in, in terrible, terrible suffering. And all of a sudden, the sky grows super. It's not an eclipse. Nothing natural about it. This is entirely supernatural. And from this moment forward, there's no insults in the record. As a matter of fact, well, I'll come back to that. But at any rate, now to be quick, Jesus is going to speak three times. No, no, that's wrong. He's going to be silent for three hours. And folks, I'm just going to wax theological for a moment here. The work of atonement was done on the cross. Because this is what is at stake. During, because when, he, when, when finally at the end of those three hours, Jesus is going to cry out, Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, listen, I, I, I'm not going to pretend that I can simplify this so it makes all the sense in the world to us, but I think, number one, a lot of the confusion we have when we think about this is because we think of death as, as the cessation of being. How can God die? It must have been the human that died. No, 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 no. It was the God-man who died, but Think about it biblically. The first time we encounter death in the Scripture is Genesis chapter 3, and, and God says, don't eat of that tree. In the day you eat it, you will certainly die. He eats the tree, and he dies 938 years later. No, 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 no. He dies physically, but physical death is a grand afterthought in Scripture. You know how hard it is for God to fix phys physical death? Lazarus, come out here. It's over. Taken care of. You know how hard it is for God to fix spiritual death? It's this scene. And spiritual death, think about it. What happened to Adam? He had walked in the cool of the day. Now he's alienated from God. He's angry with God. It's all about fellowship, relationship. And I said yesterday that you've got to understand this. What's going on in the cross? I think it, it becomes, it, it makes sense. Not that we can get to the bottom of it, but at least it makes sense if you understand this. That spiritual death 
is alienation. It's the separation of, uh, it's, it's disfellowshipping. And, 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 and the fact is that we believe in a triune God, but we don't understand that. But by the same token, what it means is that there are these three persons of one Godhead, and they exist as persons from eternity, and they exist in blessed, loving relationship. There is an infinite measure of love and companionship and, 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 and just, it's relationship. And whatever that infinite relationship is. And by the way, I like to say, you and I are made in God's image. And for that reason, there's nothing more important in life than relationship. Relationship defines and animates and gives, gives significance to life. You know, don't spend any time working on this, but if you were to, to contemplate what it is or what it even perhaps, God forbid, has been that brought you to the end of yourself emotionally, so much, so, so absolutely the end of yourself, that you really despaired of life, you weren't interested in life anymore, it just took all, it's just the pain was on, it won't have to do with money, it won't have to do with health, it'll have to do with relationship. That's, we're made in the image of God. Now, I want to just take that and take our blessed, delightful, defining, finite relationships and somehow imagine that between the persons of the Godhead, there is this absolutely, infinitely blessed relationship. And whatever it is, as Jesus hung on the cross for those three hours, the second person of a triune Godhead is going to be judicially disfellowshipped. That's what's at stake. And this is every bit as horrible for the Father as it is for the Son. But that's, as I keep saying, the wages of death is sin. God didn't have to deliberate that. Did you get me? Did you catch that? <laughs> I did. The wages of death is not sin. Okay, the wages of sin is death. I was paying attention if you weren't. But, but, but the point is, that's what he says, the wage, that's what Paul says. And my point is that God didn't have to deliberate about that. It's the necessary consequence of sin, which is an offense to the holiness, the infinite holiness of God. And so what I'm saying to you, for three hours, Jesus hanged on the cross. And at the end of those three hours, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, interestingly enough, when, when he said that, uh, and I want to give myself some... Hold on here. All right, I'll just tell you. You remember the story. I was going to go to the scripture, but I, it'll take too much time. But in, uh, that's a terrible thing to say. Don't tell anybody I said that. But, but uh, uh, what, what, what happened is when he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and that's the Aramaic, of course, but the fact is that there were people who, were, for one reason or another, didn't hear him entirely, and they thought he had cried for Elijah. And... And, and, and they, they, they said, maybe he, they, they responded by saying, is he crying for Elijah? Maybe Elijah will come. Now, generally, that is read as if it were cynicism. Ha, 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 he's crying. I don't think so. I think they're saying, the sky is dark. And now he cries. I think they're saying, man, you know, we were instructed this man isn't the Messiah. But wait a minute. Maybe he is. The sky has grown dark. Maybe Elijah will come. I think it was a note of hope. But at any rate, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And, and that is, it's right out of Psalm 22. Let me tell you one thing real quickly. I, uh, it is the habit of, of, of Jewish rabbis and even, even people and so on to contemplate their scriptures, and they never do it, they don't do it just in their mind. They always very quietly under their voice sing it, uh, the scriptures and so on. But they will often say the first phrase and the last phrase out loud. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is the first verse of Psalm 22. And for reasons I won't get into, but I invite you to explore, I wonder if Jesus, this was not the scripture that Jesus contemplated, that he sang under his breath as he, to enable him to, to get through this experience. Because in the middle of Psalm 22, all of a sudden it says, 
but the, the whole, at verse 21, Psalm 22, the whole thing, the first 21 verses are just the lament of a man who is forsaken by God, but he won't let go. And he is, he is desperate, he, he, he's totally, but he won't let go. And all of a sudden, in verse 21, everything changes. And he says, well, I won't tell you what he has said, but the last part of the verse of the psalm is, I'm going to tell people what you have accomplished. Now, here's the point. I want to go to John 19, because he first of all cries out, my God, my God. And then, and I, I, I put those two together, because I think in point of fact, uh, we really have one statement. So let me take you about down to John 19. And uh, John 19 and verse 28. You have it in front of you there in the gray. So now Jesus is hung on a cross for three hours. He has cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The darkness has lifted. And Jesus, hanging on the cross, says, and I want you to see what John says. After this, Jesus, knowing that the... All right. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. All right, time out. I've got to just do this real quickly. There is some discussion about this. To what do you attach this phrase here, that the Scripture might be fulfilled? And many attach it to, I thirst. And so the idea is Jesus, knowing all things were accomplished, in order to fulfill the Scriptures, he said, I thirst. Well, there are two problems with this. And number one is, there's no place in the Old Testament where, it, where you have a predictive prophecy of this, and so people come up with a lot of strange ideas. The other thing, Jesus didn't choreograph, didn't live his life out deliberately fulfilling. The, 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 it was fulfilled because, I mean, the prophecy is, is simply that which Jesus is going to do. But the point is that much better is to read this phrase altogether, knowing that all things were now accomplished that the Scriptures demanded. So that's why I say, Jesus, the work of the, the atonement was accomplished on the cross. You need to understand that. Because for those three hours, Jesus had known a bottomless measure of the kind of, of, of alienation from God that is the necessary result of sin, and it is the definition of spiritual death. And so he had enabled, he had lived through, and, and, and we will explore for all eternity, try and understand. And I think the more we understand a triune God, and we'll never, it's, fin, it's, it's, it's infinite, we'll never, we'll never get there, but we will more and more appreciate. Because you know what? In the next life, we're going to be busy, we're going to be building, we're going to have assignments and so on, and it's all going to be done under the auspices of this triune God, and we'll be able to actually work, watch as, as, as they work together to accomplish things and so on. And we will, in a greater and greater way, learn to appreciate the, the reality of these three persons in one God, and, but my point is that uh, we'll never get to the bottom of understanding that relationship. It'll be more precious and perhaps more vibrant to us. But my point is simply that when he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's what's at stake. But now the darkness is lifted and Jesus is hanging on the cross and he knows that the work is done. All things that the scripture demanded. Ponder that for a minute. All that the Scripture teaches about what a holy, righteous God we serve, about how he must demand the payment of alienation, spiritual death of those, of all men. And, 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 and knowing that all things were accomplished. Now, I think that what you have here is really one saying. And the issue is this. One of the, we know that crucifixion absolutely drains, saps the body of every scintilla of moisture. Not just sweat and saliva, but begins to extract uh, moisture from the water from the red blood cells and so on. But what happens is, and this is what I mentioned before, your, your throat gets so dry, so chopped, your, your tongue begins to swell, your throat box gets so chapped and painful. And again, most people die of asphyxiation. Their, th their tongue swells so that they can't draw breath anymore. 
So we can be confident that's exactly, now what happened, and that is he hasn't died, but, but his throat is so swollen, uh, so painful, so unspeakably dried and, 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 and tortured that he can't speak. And I think the point is that he has something that he desperately wants to say. But he didn't have the strength to say it. Uh, you know, it's something that he has paid a, an unimaginable price to earn the right to say. But he, he doesn't have the strength to say it. And, and, and what he has to say, the whole moral universe is longing to hear him say. But he can't do it. And several times he's rejected that cheap wine. But now, I think in a voice that probably only the people at the foot of the cross, the soldiers stationed there could hear, he says, I, I thirst. And so a soldier takes a sponge and lifts it up on a, on a hyssop stalk. And, and I picture Jesus taking some of that wine and, and soaking it into his mouth and trying to get a little, little strength, a little life back in his voice box because he has something to say. He doesn't have the strength to say it. And so now he gathers his strength. And, and, and with a voice now somewhat refreshed, he cries out, oh, It is finished. Oh, that doesn't take your breath away. What possibly could? It is finished. It's done. What, what could be more thoroughly break the heart of God than for you and I to think we could add anything to that? It's finished. The books are balanced. The payment is made. Oh, bless God. Now, having cried, it is finished, Jesus gives up the ghost. And whereas before it was my God, my God, now it's Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now listen, physical death is an afterthought, but it's a necessary part of death, and Jesus came to bear the entire weight of death. And so in fact, he, is, he does surrender his life, and this is going to be very important because, we got to be quick now, but Jesus is laid. His body is taken down. And, uh, oh, and by the way, because this is what I didn't say earlier in the Sunday school hour with regard to, we were talking about Pilate. But I, I told that crowd this morning in Sunday school that I think Pilate's going to be in heaven. And the primary reason is, because I should have mentioned this earlier, as they fixed Jesus on that cross, there was a, it's called a titulus. And again, it was part of Roman, the, the, the Roman determination that this be an object lesson. And so they would affix a sign that, uh, that, that made it clear that the reason this man was dying was because he had raised his hand against Rome. But what, you remember, what Pilate wrote was, in three languages, he didn't have to do that, what he wrote was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And, and, and what defines that for us is that the Bible, John says that the, the Sanhedrinists came, when they saw that, they were horrified. It was right where everybody could see it. And so they came to Pilate, and they said, don't write Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Write, he claimed to be the King of the Jews. Hear what's going on there? Sedition. And once again, Pilate, the only person who can sit in judgment on this, proclaims, he says, what I have written, I have written. And I can't, I can't see that without thinking back to what Jesus had said to him just a few minutes earlier. You right, say rightly that I am a king. It was for this purpose that I was born and came into this world to bear witnesses to this truth. And any man who is of the truth is going to hear my voice. And I think Pilate has is, is given his testimony. But at any rate, Jesus hanging on that cross beneath that titulus, the sky now having grown naturally light once again, Jesus is taken down. And by the way, normally, listen, I said for the last hour that it's so important to understand that Jesus did not die having been convicted of sedition, but he did die the death that Rome designed for seditionists. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But in point of fact, he, there are so many ways in the narrative that the point is made that he was declared, he was demonstrated by the only man who had authority to do so, by the only man who had interrogated him and so on. He was declared to be absolutely innocent of sedition. 
And maybe the last testimony to that end is when Joseph uh, and Nicodemus, Nicodemus and then Joseph, go to Pilate and ask for his body. The reason they did that is because the last ignominy of crucifixion was intended to be the body was not buried. Now there were exceptions, but, but the body was not, it was left out in the open to be eaten of the, the animals and so on, the birds of prey, and, and that was a, a, a way for Rome to make the point once again that we will not tolerate sedition. This is what you're going to look at. So my point is that Joseph and Nicodemus go and they ask for the body, they prepare the body, and somewhere late in the afternoon on Friday, uh, well, now let me back up. All right, I'm going to conclude with this. Let me say that Jesus is going to be buried, going to be put in a tomb, and he's going to come out, he's going to emerge on Sunday morning. Uh, the reason, John 19, 7, that Jesus was put on a cross, put these two verses right next to each other. John 19, 7, and that's where all the Sanhedrinists had exhausted every hope they had of getting Pilate to crucify Jesus as a seditionist. So they said, all right, if you won't crucify him as a seditionist, we have a law. And he ought to die by our law because he claimed to be the Son of God. That's why Jesus died. Now juxtapose that verse with Romans 1.4, which says that he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And the great seal, God's seal of approval on everything Jesus claimed concerning who he was and what he had come to do is the resurrection. And, and that word that Paul uses is an interesting word in Romans 1, 4. He was declared, it's our word, horizon. And the idea seems to be that it was just spread across the horizon from sky to earth, from east to west, so you can't miss it. There's no denying it. This man is what he, he is the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And I, we, we don't, we're not going to go through the resurrection ministry, but just know that those 40 days by which Jesus showed himself alive by many infallible proofs absolutely demonstrate the truthfulness of all that he claimed concerning his, himself and his work. And I'd like to conclude with this. Bear with me for one minute. You know, we talked earlier, yesterday, about the raising of Lazarus. And we made the point that, that the power of that miracle is entirely dependent upon the reality of Lazarus' death. And that's why I believe Jesus tarried for two days, so that when he got there, it was the fourth day, and the tomb was sealed, and, and, and it had to be sealed at the, the evening of the third day after a man's death, because that body began to stink. And Martha says, when Jesus says, roll back, no, don't do that, because he stinks, and he did. And it was an awful carelessness to, to subject people to that. Now, the stench that rolled out of that tomb was pivotal to the, to the force of that miracle, because the raising of Lazarus is meaningful only if you're absolutely confident he was dead. Does that make sense? All right, now I want you to jump forward to Jesus. The fourth protocol, I said that there were four protocols. Number one, that Rome demanded. It had to be cruel, it had to be lingering, it had to be public. The fourth one was it had to be absolutely, it had, it had to be certified. And the point is that Rome did not want, Rome wouldn't tolerate the possibility that the, that the rumor would get out that somehow he had survived. And so the protocol was that before a man came off the cross, there had to be physical evidence while he's on the cross that he was dead. And that's the spear in the side. Now three times, John 3, John 8, and John 12, Jesus says, if I am lifted up, as Moses lifted up, even so must I lift it up. John 8, if I, when I am lifted up, you'll know I'm speaking for God. John 12, if I am lifted up, then I will draw him into myself. And John tells us explicitly in John 12 that he was talking about the type of death he would die. Folks, listen, why was it imperative that he die by, we might have expected him to die at the hands of the Jews by stoning, but Jesus contrived, I can walk you through it, to make sure that he would die at the hands of the Romans. And I think the primary reason is that you didn't have to be there on that afternoon to see the blood and, and the water flow out of Jesus' side. 
demonstrating the eruption of his heart and so on. You don't have to see it. Anywhere you lived in the Roman Empire, when you heard that that man had died on a Roman cross, you knew he didn't come down till he was dead. There was a protocol that if a man was inadvertently taken off the cross and while he was lying on the, on the earth, there was a last hint of life, a puff of breath or a fluttering eyelid, all four soldiers were immediately put on a cross. That's how serious they were, that the man be demonstrated to be dead. And by reason of the fact that Jesus died, he was lifted up. Now we know that he speaks for God. Now he draws all men to himself because there is such unmistakable, inescapable proof that he was dead, he did rise, and therefore he is everything he claimed he was and he can do everything he claimed to do. Amen?